Today, we launch, as we said, a new series in the Sermon on the Mount. Open up your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. And to start, let's talk about the universe, shall we? So science tells us that there is some dark, mysterious energy that is causing the universe to expand. And apparently, what we are learning in recent scientific discoveries is that the expansion of our universe is accelerating. Uh, people much, much smarter than myself have calculated the current rate of expansion by which our universe is growing at 44.7 miles per second. Think about that. 44.7 miles per second, the universe is expanding. Here's my question. What is it expanding into? Like, what, what, is it make, what, what is it taking space away from? Anybody ever wanted that, right? Uh, if it's growing, something's got to be beyond it. Anyways, that's not for here to answer. But 44.7 miles per second. We also know that there is a finite amount of usable energy in the world. And it's currently being used up with every single second that we're alive. So the sun, for example, has a finite amount of energy. The sun will inevitably burn out and go cold. You understand that? And, and, and eventually, you give it enough billions and billions of years, scientists tell us that the entire universe will go cold, black, and dark, and all the usable energy everywhere in every solar system, everywhere, the billions and billions of galaxies that we're currently aware of, they will be cold and dark, and there will be no energy left anywhere. In fact, this is called maximum entropy, where no further work can be done, no more energy may be expended, no more further energy can be extracted from any atom anywhere in the universe. And so as everything grows cold and dark and it is spreading apart, it's getting farther and farther apart, it's called maximum entropy, it's also called the heat death of the universe. Isn't that interesting? The heat death of the universe. And uh, contrary to the name, it has nothing to do with the, uh, we'll say the hotness of the temperature, but it's when the temperature is a fraction of a degree above absolute zero everywhere in the universe, even while it expands at 44.7 miles Per second. Isn't that a crazy, crazy thought? Like how all of this is going to go? Now, in case some of you are worried, um, you will not be alive to experience this. And even if you were, you wouldn't anyways, because the sun is going to consume you before that as it turns into a red giant and melts you to death. So just want to be clear, none of you will have to experience the heat death of the universe. Science is revealing something to us about just the nature of the physical realm, and here it is, everything, and I mean everything in the universe is decaying, everything. Everything in the universe is breaking down before our eyes. And it's not just out there. Let's just take a moment, let's talk about your bodies for a moment, right? How many of you can just give me a hearty amen that your body is falling apart, right? Amen. amen. That was the most unity we have ever had in any church. Uh, about the age of 20, your brain starts breaking down. I don't know who counted the neurons in a person's brain. Apparently there's about 100 billion neurons in a person's brain. And about the age of 20, even though different parts of your brain are still developing, your brain neurons start to die and they start to get farther and farther apart. By the age of 40, scientists tell us that the average person is losing 10,000 neurons, neurons, I can't say the word neurons, per day. 
Anybody experienced some changes around the age of 40? You're like, well, I can't remember stuff, right? Apparently, like, there's an actual scientific reason for this. By the age of 20, your lungs begin to decreasing in capacity unless you work on them and grow their capacity. Your skin is said to start aging around mid-20s, four, five, or six years old. That's when your skin begins to age. Um, scientists did a study I read about 10 years ago, and they said the average age where the human being plateaus and starts dying is 24 years old. So I met, um, actually it was just yesterday, there was a woman and it was her birthday and I said, oh, happy birthday, you're officially dying because she was turning 24 years old. She was like, what? That's weird. I'm like, tell me about it. It's sad to be you, right? I'm basically dead. There we go. We're all dying. We're all dying. But it doesn't just, it doesn't just stop there. It's not just all the way out there and it's not just here, okay? There's something even bigger going on. Um, what we see is that even the soul, the spiritual realm, that there is a rottenness, there is a decay, there is an entropy, there is a disintegration of what happens in our ethics, in our character, in our morality, and in our spiritual realm. In fact, we go back to the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. And here, here's what happens, is that this is before there is a formal external divine law introduced to the world, and this is before the people of God are organized, and God allows humanity to see what it is made of if left alone. And so here is, the, here is the verdict of God as he looks at humanity left alone without divine intervention. By the way, um, you're not going to be able to relate to this because God is giving you the privilege to grow up in a place where you are profoundly informed by a Judeo-Christian ethic, which has mitigated the depth of your plausible depravity, okay? You would be way, way worse if you did not grow up under the blessing of a Judeo-Christian ethic that has informed every part of your life in our culture. Genesis 6, let's say none of that happened and the world was just given over to itself, here's what would happen. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was what? Great in the earth. Well, how great, Pastor Michael? That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That how did they go from Adam and Eve without sin Sin is then therefore introduced, and just six chapters later, this is the result. Why? Because the decay of the world, it's not just out there, and it's not just physical, it is deeply spiritual, and it is inside of us. From the moment sin entered the world, it has ravaged every part of creation, physical and spiritual. So that when you are born, you are born with matter and you are born into sin and your spiritual side is broken. Everything in you grows up broken. And parents are supposed to bring some kind of law and some kind of order to all of this brokenness is what we try to do. And then, and then in America, we grew up with the tremendous lie. It's the myth of progress. Uh, we have all been sold a terrible, terrible lie. Here's the lie. Look at how technology has advanced. Look at us. We have progressed. We are getting better. We have subdued, uh, we have subdued sickness. We have subdued creation. We are in control. Ha, ha, ha. And then Irma happens and Harvey happens, right? We are doing so great. Look at all the technological advances. We are eradicating poverty. Are we really? We are eradicating starvation. I mean, look at what we're doing. The world is progressing. We are getting better. 
And what so many people have misunderstood is that just because we've made massive technological advances, that has not stopped the moral, spiritual, and ethical decay of humanity. We are getting more and more powerful with less and less character. And so what happens now is we get to be on the brink of nuclear war. How's that feel? Right? Thank God you don't live in South Korea or in North Korea right now with no control over what's happening. Right? These are the realities of increased technology with decreased morality. Uh, somehow, all over the world, people are still getting their heads chopped off, and the world's supposed to be getting better. What's happening is we're getting smarter, but we're not getting better. That there's not an internal transformation, but there are greater capacities, and with all of these capacities, they do come the option for greater good if used for good, but they also carry with them profound opportunities for great evil. And the reason I'm telling you all of this bad news is because there is an assumption behind the Sermon on the Mount. There's an assumption behind this sermon that we're gonna talk about today that if you don't get it, you're not gonna understand the weight of what Jesus is asking you to do. And here's the assumption. Everything's not okay. You're not okay. Your spouse isn't okay. Your kids aren't okay. This universe isn't okay. Marriages aren't okay. The government isn't okay. Nothing is really working optimally. Have you noticed that? And even like some of you, you own a business or you work for a company, you're a manager. It's like, how much work does it take just to make things work okay, let alone good or great? Even to make things semi-function takes an incredible amount of work. We're resisting the natural decay that is all around us. And so this is the assumption. You and I are plucked out of darkness and we are being sent into rottenness and decay even as we have that same rottenness decay inside of ourselves. So this is Jesus' context. You have to get this. Everything needs to be saved and redeemed. There is not one part of creation that does not need redemption. And somehow he plucks out us broken, struggling, ridiculous people, and he says, go into the decay, into the darkness, into the chaos, and you are to be salt, and you are to be light. It's profound. But what does it mean? Jesus' agenda. I want you to hear me. Uh, we'll just get a big picture. Here's his agenda. It is simply to reverse the decay, to empower, and to release saved people to change the world. One soul, one family, one church at a time. Uh, what Jesus wants to do is take this really broken group of people, and he wants to release them onto the world to reverse the decay to do something profound, to create the kingdom of heaven here on earth, to bring it down, and not just to stop the decay, but to see actual spiritual things grow. And this is what we get to do. Jesus says, you are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. Now, salt and light have a couple things in common. Here's one of them. Everybody needs them. They are fundamentals. So, for example, if you have too little salt in your diet, you're going to start uh, having blurry vision. You're going to get really confused. Everything's going to stop functioning, and then eventually you're going to die. You have too much. You start to get heart disease. You have a stroke. Your brain starts working really, really funny. You get fuzzy. Inevitably, you have too much salt for too long. You 
die. Uh, in, in fact, for little babies, it said that um, for their eyes to develop in the first couple months, they need exposure to actual light. If they don't have exposure to light, they will be legally blind for the rest of their lives. There's so much formation and development that happens in the first few months of the baby's life. And so here's what we find. We need these things. Salt and light are things that are just requirements for life. Number two, everybody likes them in moderation. I mean, there are some people, you're crazy. You don't like chocolate. I don't know what's wrong with you. You don't like bacon. What? Right? Too much salt. Oh, right? But everybody likes salt a little bit. Everybody does, right? Every, and you put the two of them together, it's like magical things start happening. Everybody likes salt. Everybody likes light in moderation, right? Who likes to look at the sun directly? Don't raise your hand, right? Everybody likes these things in moderation, and God's hardwired us to want and to like the things that are requirements for life. But life without either of the number three is unthinkable. Uh, if, if you talk to most people and you say, would you rather be blind or have your leg cut off? They would say, cut off my leg. If you ask most people, would you rather be blind or have your arm cut off? They would say, cut off my arm. There's something so fundamental about your eyes that to, to, ha to not have them is unthinkable. And so in your notes, number one, uh, we are salt. We are decay preventers. We are not dentists. <laughs> we are decay preventers. Here's what Jesus says. You... You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. First, notice the word you. It is not singular, it is plural. This is very important because there is something about the aggregate church when we all come together and we are functioning like salt that we together become very beneficial to the world. We become a blessing to the world. Now at this point, you should be saying, okay, Michael, what does he mean by salt? What does this mean? Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways you could translate this, right? Um, and it, what's funny about Jesus is that he doesn't really give a lot of detail. Um, I find myself leaving his teaching sometime and I read what he says, and I think to myself, that could apply here and there and everywhere. And I think a lot of you might say to me, okay, Michael, what does this mean for us here and now? And I think if Jesus was up here, and some of you raise your hand and say, Jesus, what does this mean right here, right now for my life? I think here's what he would probably say to you. Go figure it out. But here are some options, okay? Here are some options, um, how they might have interpreted this. Number one, salt at the time, extremely valuable, extremely valuable. So they could have interpreted it like this. Um, well, we are the most valuable people in the world. We need to live like it. And we are. We're infinitely valuable. We're sons and we're daughters of God. We're valuable because we're human. We're also valuable because we're made in his image, but we're also his sons and daughters through faith in the blood of Christ. Like, that's, that's legit. Here's another option. Salt was used to season food. And you could say this. We're here to make the world better. Village Church, are we here to make the world better? Yeah, it feels good, right? That's not bad. I like that. Here's another one. Salt purifies and heals. They could say this. We're here to heal the world, right? Are we here to bring healing into the world? Yeah, I would say we are. Have you ever gone into salt water with an open wound, by the way? Sometimes we sting in the process of healing. Salt in your body makes you thirst, okay? Are we here to make people thirsty for God? 
Amen, there we go. I mean, do you see how like many ways you can walk away from this one line? You are the salt of the world. Like, what does he mean? It goes on. Salt is also really destructive. If you have a neighbor and you really don't like them, get a bunch of salt and put it all over their front yard and see what happens. Salt is really destructive. Salt can be very destructive. You notice in the, in the Midwest when they salt our roads, it corrodes all the inside of your car. You guys notice that? You go to San Diego, they have no corrosion on their cars like we do. You go to Texas, no corrosion. Why? Because salt all over begins to corrode and it has a destructive purpose. We're here to cast judgment on the world. And we kind of are, right? We're here to say the world is judged. Come to Jesus Christ. And that's legit. They could walk away with this empowered to be really condemning and judgy. That's also plausible. Uh, Number six, and I I honestly think this is where Jesus is really getting at, but he kind of leaves it vague so honestly people could apply it any way they want. But salt was used to preserve, to prevent decay. Um, So you would take meat and you would rub salt all over it. It would function as a preservative. FYI, they did not have electricity in Jesus' day, nor did they have refrigerators. We know this, right? Okay, good. So if they were going to make stuff last, they would have to figure out different ways to preserve food. And salt was incredibly beneficial. So what does this mean? Your salt. Here's what I think the oomph, the core of what Jesus is trying to say here is, we are here to prevent souls protect families, and slow down culture from spiritual decay. I'm going to stop there for a moment. So like one of the, one of the re, like real-time opportunities that we have is to walk into the decay and the darkness of individuals' lives, of families, and of culture, and mitigate or slow down decay. This is very challenging, very hard. Now, some of you will say, How do we do this? And you'll put a prepositional phrase on it like this. Through the government. Can the government, it's a trick question, can the government slow down moral decay? Yeah. Uh, In fact, when the government um, allows certain behaviors to be legal, it hastens the moral, ethical, spiritual decay of the people who participate in them. And when government restrains legally certain sin, it slows down the decay. I mean, this is a huge blessing in the world is government. God came up with the idea of government to restrain humanity from being Genesis 6, our worst plausible selves. But can government ever reverse decay? What's the answer? No, you can't legislate morality. So this is why in your homes, some of your homes, you, you are like lawmakers and you are law executors. And your law will restrain sin for a time, but it will never make the heart right. It will never transform the heart. Law restrains, but law does not create wholeness and growth. It is a restraint factor. And so this is why as the church, we have to understand what's really powerful about salt is that salt is a decay reducer, mitigator. It slows it down. But here's why we say this. We're here to prevent souls, protect families, and slow down culture from spiritual decay through the gospel, through the powerful message, truth of God. This is the only factor that we can proclaim, and it will not just slow it down, but actually will reverse and start to create growth where decay is the natural trajectory. This is a powerful reality. So here, I want you to just catch for a moment. Jesus says you're salt. Here's what he's saying. This, this whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. This whole world is decaying morally, spiritually, ethically, governments, war, everywhere. Your job 
is to be small communities and you are to go into relationships in your life and you are to be a preservative. You are to slow this down and it starts with your families. It starts with the way you enforce and enact law in your families. We don't just let our kids go crazy, right? But we complement our law with what? The gospel. And the gospel gives us power. Law gives us restraint. The gospel gives us power. And then we go into work or different capacities. And sometimes in work, we don't have the ability to control culture. But if you're the boss, if you're the manager, you can create cultures that prevent moral, ethical, relational, spiritual decay from happening. Sometimes the only thing you have actual control over at work or in different environments is your own personal atmosphere and culture. And you can, you can make sure that the people who walk into your atmosphere are not experiencing unnecessary moral decay, spiritual decay, ethical decay, relational decay, because you're gonna be in an area where there's gonna be growth because the gospel is gonna permeate your personal atmosphere. I think we need to know the limits of our strategies. The limits of government, the limits of law, the limits of legislation is that they only mitigate, they never reverse trajectory. So he goes on, he says, you, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? So some people have said, um, look, the primary thing Jesus is trying to say is that um, you're to salt and you're supposed to make things tasty. I don't think that's actually what's happening here because the way you would measure potency of salt is not by looking at it, but by tasting it. The taste is the metric for whether or not it's usable to eat, whether or not it's usable to destroy, whether or not it's usable to preserve, because if a salt has lost its saltiness, then it's not gonna be good to metaphorically refrigerate your meat, right? Or refrigerate that stuff that needs preserving. And so what happens is you would taste it to, to, to determine whether or not this salt was gonna be usable. And so here's what we find. How could sodium chloride become any less sodium chloride? Have you ever wondered that? Like, how does salt lose its saltiness? Let me give you one word, corruption. Because what would happen is that they would start adding things to the salt to make it last longer and go further. So I want you to imagine you're selling salt, and if you put a little bit of a cheaper substance in it that was edible, you could sell more, but it would have less potency. So the potency of the salt was contingent on how much corruption was already in it. The salt itself isn't losing its flavor. What's doing is it's being corrupted, and there's less and less particles of salt per metric unit. And so what's happening here is Jesus is saying, look, you're going to lose your saltiness. Christian, here's, I want to tell you how you're going to lose it. I want you to hear me very carefully. Because some of you, some of you feel like this. Uh, I am broken, I am depressed, I am struggling, I am sad, I am frustrated, I'm spiritually apathetic, I'm not happy where I am with the Lord. And your conclusion is the following. I am unusable by God. And I want to tell you, none of those make you unusable by God. There is one thing that will make you unusable by God, that will make you, as he says, um, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. There is one thing, Christian, that will make you unusable, and it is not your frustration or your struggles or your brokenness. In fact, those doubly make you usable by God, FYI. There is one thing that will make you unusable to God, that will make him, when he's trying to find someone to do something big for him, or small, or meaningful, or anything, look at you and say, nope, here's the word, worldliness. That's it, worldliness. 
I can sit with people and counsel them and they can be struggling with some of the most frustrating sins, addictions, substance addiction, sexual addiction, you name it. And I can look at that person's heart and I can just see struggle and brokenness. And I can look at them and say, God is gonna use this. He's gonna use it now and he's gonna use it later. You're usable. And they hate themselves because of the sin and the struggles and the battle. And I'm like, no, you are ripe. You are ready to be used. But there's a different kind of person that I counsel with. I won't even meet with them a second time. And that person is the one who comes in and they just love the world. You tell them what God wants for them. They're just gonna go do what they wanna do. Not a lot of sadness, not a lot of sorrow. They trusted in Jesus, they prayed the prayer, they're all good, but they love the world. They're called on it, they resist it, not even gonna have a conversation. Why? The heart's too hard. And the moment God sees worldliness, not brokenness, are you hearing the distinction here? The moment God sees worldliness, it passes you by. That's it. That's it. So I've been asked after the last service, Michael, what is, what is worldliness? Because I buy things in the world, I buy coffee, I drink. The world and the church, we have a lot of things in common. Do we love to eat? You can say, you may guess on that one, right? So is eating worldliness? No, eating's fun, eating's good, fine. We have a lot of things in common, but there is a point where the two begin to dis- disagree, where the world calls this thing good and the Bible calls this thing sin. And the moment these things converge, worldliness begins. Or sometimes worldliness has to do with taking a good thing and making it more important than God. And the moment that thing happens, it begins to be worldliness. And then another person came up to me and they said to me after the service, these were great questions, by the way. Um, They said, well, aren't we all worldly to a degree? And what's the answer? Yes, or are we not all unusable? The answer is no. Here's the difference. Because there, there are moments when you're doing dumb things and you get caught Someone comes up to you and says, I see what you're doing. And here's how you respond. <sighs> Shame, embarrassment, right? Like why, I don't know why I'm doing this, right? And there is an actual heart that does not want this thing. And when you're caught, you respond with an ounce of humility. Now, don't get me wrong, you're doing something worldly, you're doing something sin, right? But in that moment of humility, God can now use this. This is usable by God because you don't want it to control you. I work with different kinds of addicts in all different kinds of ways. Many of you do also. Many of you know this personally, right? Uh, They are prone to do things and they hate it and they are ashamed of it and they're trying to get over it and they're overcoming slowly, like two steps forward, three steps back, five steps forward, 10 steps back, you know what I mean? Like, it's a really hard process. And and so this is a very real thing that people are are experiencing and they feel completely unusable. That is is not what we're talking about right now. Worldliness has to do with this. When you get caught and you say, forget it, you know what God wants. You know it clearly. Like if Jesus were here, there's no difference, right? The word of God or Jesus himself saying it to your face, no difference. Jesus looks at you and says, that's sin. And you say, "Mm mm-hmm, okay. Some of you have that. And let me tell you, you're useless. You are useless. You're not worthless, you're useless. Now, some of you are saying, I've done that in the past. And let me tell you what makes you useful to God. You get on your face and you repent. And the moment humility comes into your heart, you cannot be used by God. You can be used by God. Now, some of you are gonna hear me wrongly. And here's what you're going to hear. You're saying I'm not saved. I didn't say that. You might not be. That's between you and the Lord. I'm not going to judge you on that moment. It's a scary place to be when you will look at the word of God, know what it says, and then walk the opposite direction. I fear for your soul. But I'm not saying you are going to go to hell. I'm saying that on this earth, God will not use you. 
Some of us are hiding and we're hiding and we're hiding and there's actually no shame. I get hiding things you're embarrassed of, right? I get hiding things you're ashamed. I get secret sins and struggles that plague you and create so much doubt and shame and guilt in your heart. I get that. But there's a different level of brokenness, of worldliness that says, I'm gonna choose the world and I'm gonna bank that my profession of faith when I was five years old is gonna get me into heaven. That makes you unusable by God and he will pass you by. Now for the rest of you who hate yourselves for your sin, you are in the most prime place of your life to give God glory, to repent, and to see God use you. There is a difference between worldliness and brokenness. James 1.27 says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their affliction, number one. Number two, to keep oneself unstained from the world. To be honest, God loves to use anybody who is broken and humble. There also seems to be a biblical theme that if you will remain pure, there will be even bigger jobs that he can ask you to do and he can ask you to do for himself. And that there is a benefit and blessing because you're able to be used. And I'll tell you, I do not want to get to heaven. I'll be honest. Um, I don't want to get to heaven and have Jesus say, I wanted to use you, but you just love the world too much. You were kind of just too involved in the world and the pleasures of the world and these kind of things. Like, I want Jesus to be able to look at me and say, dude, you weren't perfect. He's not gonna call me dude, by the way. I'm probably going Michael. <laughs> dude, you weren't perfect. You struggled a lot. I saw it all. But you wanted to serve me. And when I called, you went. When I told you to confess, you confessed. When I told you to have that conversation, you had the conversation. You were broken, but you were usable. And that's what I want God to do. I don't want him to bypass me. So how do, how do we apply this? I'm gonna punt that to you. Some of you want me to give you all the answers. I don't know how God wants you to be salt. Here's my challenge. Go to your community group and put that question on the table because God has given each of you unique experiences, influences to do very specific things. And this is an opportunity for you to go before the Lord and to say, God, what does this look like? What is that next step for me? What, where are the places that I can walk into and I can prevent and slow down decay? Lord, am I hastening decay in my relationships at work? Am I feeding this trajectory? Lord, are there changes that I need to make? This is a discussion that you and your community group are gonna have to have together. But salt is limited. It can slow corruption. It cannot reverse corruption. Light, on the other hand, is much more potent. Light creates growth. Which brings us to number two. You are light. You are darkness dispellers. Jesus says you are the light of the world. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 5. You were once darkness. Notice he didn't say in darkness. What does he say? You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Light has four major functions. And in each of these functions, you may find a next step for what God wants you to do to be light. Number one, light is a bully. It dispels darkness, right? Wherever light goes, darkness flees. Isn't that pretty sweet? Like light has power. 
And so what you're gonna find is that you are gonna be given the opportunity wherever you go because you are light. And by the way, they're not spotlights and sunlight, it's candlelight, right? Uh, sort of dim, but it makes an effect. And a whole bunch of candles together create a city on a hill that is a great place when you are a traveler. But right now you're the light, you've got your candle. And everywhere you go, people are gonna see your candle. And every time your candle walks into the room, what is gonna flee? all the darkness. It is required to by the very natures and laws of the universe. So God takes this understanding, this metaphor, and he says, this is what you are. You are to walk into this world and you are to dispel darkness in your small spheres of influence. That's what you're supposed to do. Number two, light reveals reality. The light shows you what's truly there. In the darkness, you grope and you try to find out what is this and how does this work. We shine the light on truth and reality. People don't know who they are or where they came from or where they're going or how to get there. And we shine light. We reveal reality. God created you and loves you. You're made in his image. He has given Jesus Christ to pay for your sins on the cross. God raised him from the dead and publicly validated before all of heaven and hell and humanity saying this truly is the son of God with power. We shine light to these things. What is God's name in the darkness? We don't know, but God's word is light and it reveals his name is Yahweh. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, infinitely more complex than we could even grasp in our little minds. We reveal reality. Light enables growth. Try to get something to grow without light, right? We create atmospheres and cultures where things are able to grow spiritually. Dark things, ugly things grow in the darkness under rocks. Finally, light exposes hidden things. You just can't help it. When you walk into the room and you shine light onto something ugly, people are gonna see it for what it is. Uh, recently I was at, uh, we'll just say an event, where there was a whole bunch of non-Christians. And uh, I walked in and I was in a role of pastor at this event. And uh, it was amazing. Like half the people amped up their F-bombs and the other half of the people were like on really good behavior. It was hilarious. I do this. When I walk into a room, people figure out who I am and they're like, oh, he's a pastor. Or they're like, he's a pastor. We'll just push him to the limits. Uh, anyway, so it's a really great experience. So what was interesting is uh, throughout this entire event, um, the people who were, we'll just say, they were not, a lot of non-Christians, I would say the following question. What do you guys do for a living? The moment I asked it, three people got up and walked out. I don't know what they do, but here's what I do know. They don't want me to know, <laughs> okay? And here's why that's important, because here's what happens. I can't help it. Like, the, the moment you hear I'm a pastor, let alone a Christian, right, there's like this little, little candlelight that you just can't get away from, and people don't want to be exposed. And so what are people who are embarrassed do? They run. Here, here's what John 3 says. Uh, Jesus says this. This is the verdict. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his, lest his works should be exposed. I mean, this is, this is kind of the, the point here. Like, there is something about you, whether you like it or not, if you claim the name of Christ, you're gonna walk into circumstances and people are gonna be uncomfortable and they're either not gonna like you and they're gonna say things to you or they're gonna go the opposite direction. I get one of two responses, as I said. People either walk away from me or they amp up their sin and rebellion in my presence to test me. I love both of them. I'm like, bring it on. I got whatever, it's fine with me. He goes on and says, you are a city Set on a hill. And a city set on a hill, it cannot be hidden. Two things I love. Number one is it's plural. There's something happens when your candle and your candle and your candle all in aggregate come together. We create something really beautiful. 
And if you are a, a traveler and you have been traveling miles in the cold and the heat, the heat of the day and the cold by night, and you are hungry and you see in the far off distance Jerusalem, the city on a hill, what do you feel? <sighs> Relief. Thank God. There is a place to stay. There's food and there is water and there is shelter and there's people. And this is what the church is supposed to be like. The church is supposed to be this experience where people can see the village church and go, I am so glad that I'm here. There, there are people who, and some of you might be this person, you are not a believer. Like you're not a Christian. You think Christians are weird. You don't know what to do with Jesus, right? And yet you walk in here and here's your experience. I feel safe here. I don't agree with that crazy guy on the stage. I don't like what he's saying. But like, there is something different and safe here. I like that. And there's something about the city on the hill that non-Jews would travel and they would see Jerusalem. And even though they didn't believe in the God of Yahweh, they would stay and they would find care and shelter and food and they would find a place to stay. They would find something to eat. It was a profound experience, and this is what I want Village Church to be. I want Village Church to be a place where, first and foremost, we come together to give glory to Jesus Christ, to exalt him. We're made to be disciples. We go, we follow the Great Commission. But as people experience us and engage us, they can say, you know what? I may not believe the things you believe, but I like being around you guys. I'm safe here. I may disagree with your politics or your theology or whatever it is, but there's something about you guys that I really want to be around. We want to be a city on a hill. And he says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. By the way, that's just ridiculous. Who lights a lamp and then covers the light? It's total waste. That's ridiculous. Who comes to Christ and is like, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm going to cover it all up. That's totally absurd. It makes no sense whatsoever. If you're that person, I've been that person many times, we are the epitome of absurd. That's the most ridiculous thing that you could do. If you're going to be a Christian, be proud of it. In the same way, uh, he says, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here's, here's the logic. Number one, first, your light equals your lifestyle, how you live. So that there's something about how you live that people will be able to say, you're not a part of the decay that I see all around us. There actually should be something about you, whether at work, in your home, whatever, when your kids' friends who aren't Christians come into your home, there should be something just a bit more life-giving than they're used to, a bit more functional, a bit more normal, a bit more light-ish than dark-ish. <laughs> uh, something that is a little bit more healthy. And so when they see that, they're like, there's something different, right? Now, some of you will say, I don't need to preach the gospel, I'm just gonna be a good person. But, but hear me, here's the second part of the logic of this. They understand when they see your light that it is directly connected to Jesus. They don't have to wonder why you're shining differently. They know. So you go to work. You never tell anybody you're a Christian. Nobody knows at all what you believe about anything at all. And you're just assuming that if I, I'll preach the gospel and not use words. That's not possible. That the implication here is explicit. That your light is understood by the people watching it to be a Christian light, the result of your personal faith in Jesus. So why do most people hide? A couple of reasons. Number one, lack of training. Uh, some people literally feel incompetent to talk about Jesus. And I, under, I understand that. that. That is a hard place to be. You don't know what to say. You don't know how to answer questions. I love releasing people and saying this. If you don't know the answer to a question, just say this. I don't know. 
I'll find out from my pastor. And you don't need to know everything. But some people feel like they need to have all the answers before they're going to at least let people know that they're a follower of Christ. For some people, they just have a complete lack of knowledge. Um, many people grow up in liberal churches that don't proclaim the gospel and that tell people just be good, be good, be good. And there has never been teaching or training that we are not called to just be good. We're called to be light, which means people will see that we're different because of Jesus Christ. They've never been told that. There are a whole bunch of people who have never heard that and they've grown up in church their whole life. Uh, I think the third reason and the fourth reason are probably the main for most of us. We are afraid of looking dumb. Raise your hand if you've ever felt that way. Half of you are awesome and half of you are liars. All right. I get it. I, so I'm, I'm sort of prevented from this because for dudes, the question that's asked is, what do you do for a living, right? So I am forced, like, I, I can't hide what I do almost anywhere I go. Like, it's just there. But for most of you, you're not a pastor. And so for you to bring it up or for it to find its way into a conversation that is not weird, right, it's going to require a decision. And sometimes you know that there are people when they realize you're a Christian, they are just going to think you're weird and it's not going to go well for you. Or here, here's, here's a natural one. You've lived like a moron. So when you tell them you're a Christian, they're going to think you're a hypocrite. That's also, I understand that as well. There's a, a fourth reason, which is not just fear of looking dumb, but fear of backlash. Familial repercussions, work repercussions, neighbor repercussions, friendship repercussions. Let's break it down. I'm not asking you to be weird. I'm not asking you to be crazy. What I am saying, though, is that your light, your candle, should be able to be visible. And when people see it, they should be able to connect Jesus Christ directly to it. And it should do measurable good so that when people experience you, they are able to Give God glory for the works that they see you doing. If you are going to, quote unquote, preach the gospel and use words if necessary, they will never give glory to your God because they'll never know the source of your light. And so here's our challenge. This is, this is not easy. Somehow, as a neighbor, they need to know you're Christians. Maybe it might be your holiday decorations. Maybe it might be the way you get up on Sunday morning, you all go to church and you have conversations and you say hi and you're really kind to them. It could be the way you minister to them or you remember birthdays or you help them or you send them notes of encouragement. Anything, it could be. It could be any. There are so many ways to be an awesome neighbor. If I went to your neighbors and I said, tell me uh, about their faith. Are they Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, atheists, agnostics, nuns, what are they? Can your neighbors tell me, I'm not gonna go do this by the way, but could they tell me what your faith is? Well, they will never, ever, ever be able to give glory to God if they don't know that your light that's shining is in the name of Jesus. And that requires words. That requires actions that put the name of Jesus central to these things. So what? Well, a couple things. Number one is um, wrestle in your community groups together with this thing. What does this mean? There's two levels. There's the individual and there's the village church. Tell your community group leader Here's some things that we'd love to see in the village church. These are some ways that we have lost our saltiness and we have lost our light. 
What, is, what does that mean for the village church? What does it mean for you? But I want to give you two very just practical applications. Uh, number one is commit your life to the local church. And here's what I want to say this. Some of you, this is your first time in church ever possibly. And you're like, commit my life to the local church. First time I ever walked in here. If you have not committed your life to Jesus Christ, that's the first thing. Let's just talk about that, right? But if you're a believer in Jesus, this whole idea of, of, of playing coy with the, with the church, holding it a distance, you've got a billion reasons to not invest in it. I understand that. I understand that there's a million opportunities for you to be hurt, and I get that. But there is no plan B. There is no other salt. There is no other light. The local church is it. And that somehow um, Jesus has uh, designed